Well, I am what I'd like to call a little bit of a climate exile. And so we know what an exile is, right? And Merriam-Webster defines exile as somebody who is expelled from their native country. And this is how I'm a little bit of a climate exile. Um, some of you might know that I was raised in Central Oregon, in Bend specifically. And one of my favorite memories of my upbringing was cross-country skiing. And so my family, we're not, like, we're not really very hardcore with our cross-country skiing. We do it occasionally. Um, I grew up owning skis, um, but it was like a few times a winter we would go cross-country skiing. And I have such a vivid memory of piling on all of my layers and um, piling into the family car, and usually we would go with a group, and then we would brave the, brave the, the cold temperatures. And one of my most favorite things about that experience was just the sensory aspects of skiing. So I just love the beauty of, of skiing through the forest, and many times it was actually snowing. So just the, the peace and the visual beauty of the snow coming down. Um, I loved stopping in the middle of the skiing day at the shelter um, that was usually like a log cabin and drinking hot cocoa, the Swiss mist that my dad and mom had made and put in the thermos. Um, and having that just be a really special fun time, either as a family or with our group. Um, one of my not so good memories, but vivid memories of skiing is I would inevitably fall going down a hill pretty much um, every time I went. And I remember the sensation of having the snow and ice packed into my wrists. It's kind of a, a tingly feeling when the snow hits you there. And I also remember the, the feeling of disorientation when you take your boots off and you start walking around the parking lot. And you just, you're, you're kind of getting your sea legs. You feel kind of wobbly. Another memory that I have from skiing is just the thrill of going down a hill. <laughs> Even if you're not very good and the hill is not very high, um, just that feeling of, um, of joy, of just getting a little speed, and then either you make it or you don't, <laughs> right? So the thrill of victory or the sadness of defeat when you're cross-country skiing. Well, those are some of my happiest memories as a child. And um, I feel like part, part of the struggle for me living here in Western Washington is that my kids are never gonna have those same thrills or those same struggles when it comes to cross-country skiing, that I am now a little bit of a climate exile. I live here in Western Washington, and let's face it, guys, it doesn't snow a lot, and when it does, it's usually an inch, and everything shuts down, and it rains a lot, not so much in the summer, but the rest of the year, and I do feel like I've adapted. You know, I've learned how to um, put up with all of the rain and, and hopefully thrive in it. But part of me still really misses those experiences that I grew up with in the snow. And so this, this fall, we're in a series here at Harbor Covenant called Rooted. And we're, ex we're going through the rhythms of the Christian life and we're answering some of the big questions of the Christian faith. And today the question that we are gonna be answering or talking about is, where is God in the midst of suffering? Where is God in the midst of suffering? And I'm going to also talk a little bit about the question, which is slightly different, but kind of a precursor to that, of why does God allow suffering? Or what's the point of suffering? And these are really big questions, really big questions. Um, but so much of our experience around suffering, I think, has to do with our experience as being exiles, right? So we talked about what an exile is. 
Um, I'm going to read it again to you. This is from the Merriam-Webster 1828 Dictionary. It says, it, being in exile is the state of being expelled from one's native country or a place of residence by authority and forbidden to return, or at least for a period of time, forbidden to return. And Merriam-Webster also describes it that sometimes it's voluntary. So usually we think of it, I think, as being expelled. Sometimes it can be voluntary. And I feel like when you're in exile, there's this sense of even if you are become more and more at home in the culture where you're living, part of you is still longing for home and for the things that you grew up with or the things that are familiar to you. And we know that really when we look around at the broader humanity, that our humanity, that the experience of being human is a bit like being in a constant state of exile. That our native country, the place that we were made for, but that we no longer live in, is a, is a little place called Eden <laughs> that's in the book of Genesis. And looking back, when we look at that, that original intent for humanity, it's a place of harmony. It's a place of perfect relationship with humans, with the people around us, perfect harmony with God, of God walking with us. And it's also a place of meaningful work where there's no pain and there's no suffering. And the reality is, is that that place, that is the, the, the home for our hearts and for our lives. And all of us long for that. We all long for pieces of that, of that original humanity and that original Eden. We long for right relationships, to be loved, to be known, and to have purpose in our lives. And then, as we become Christians, we have sort of a different experience with exile, right? And so this is one of the threads of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is a, being a person of exile. And as we become Christians, we have sort of this tricky relationship with being in exile, because part of us are no longer exiles, right? Because we have the hope of Jesus, and we can look towards heaven as our home. And then sometimes we actually feel like what I would consider to be a double exile, that we are, we are not only in exile because we're human, but we're also in exile because the people around us often don't, don't understand us. And we are called to something different, to a different form of life. And so this ache that we often feel, it's the ache of being exiles in a broken world. It's the ache of maybe feeling misunderstood or feeling different. It's the ache of sin and death. It's the ache of waiting for that lasting hope. The hope where our home is heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. Paul writes in the book of Philippians, he says that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So we await this new city, but in the meantime, Jesus promises us that we will suffer. Our world tells us that we should expect to be comfortable, right? I want to be comfortable. You want to be comfortable. We, we all want to be comfortable. Um, but the reality is, is that Jesus says that we're not going to be comfortable. Um, that the pattern of the Christian life is to live and to die and then to rise again, right? That there's always going to be this side of heaven, that sense of living, dying, and rising again. And that we can expect this side of heaven, that there will be suffering and there will be death. And we can also expect the rising again, that there will be life and there will be joy that comes with it. Jesus says that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
And so that is that truth about the living and the dying and the rising again, that in this world that we will have trouble, that we will have suffering, but Jesus says, take heart because he will overcome the world. Well, to be in exile isn't to say that we can't enjoy the moment. It isn't to say that we can't celebrate the gifts of the world around us. This morning, I was in awe over the blue jays in my yard and the apple trees in my orchard and just the beauty of my surroundings. That's a gift of this world that I live in now. Um, but it is to say that as we are in the state of exile, that a lot of times our values, especially as people that love and follow Jesus, that they're just going to not line up with the culture around us. Because the culture around us screams comfort and entitlement, and that is not the life that Jesus has called us into. Well, as we think today about the question of where is God in the midst of suffering, um, we're going to dive into two passages of scripture. The first one is from the New Testament. Um, so join me as we, as we read a part of 1 Peter 2. And the context of this is that, is that 1 Peter is a book that is written to people that are going through tremendous suffering, that they are facing great persecution and misunderstanding for their faith. And I think that Peter has a lot to teach us today. So this is what he says to his people. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, there's that word, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the, among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then the Apostle Peter fleshes it out a bit. So this, this is sort of his his way of helping them understand what that looks like. In verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who were sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Well, goodness, these are pretty strong, um, pretty strong, strong guidelines for us today and for pe ancient people around what it looks like to behave well in the midst of suffering. That it really isn't about ourselves. It's really about honoring the people around us, loving the people that we're with, and showing that we are doing good works for the sake of bringing the good news to the world around us. We see throughout the book of 1 Peter that suffering and good works together is a theme that he uses, and he really talks about it in terms of Jesus, that the live, die, rise pattern that Jesus showed us, that it was really for the bigger purpose of us, of, of humanity. And that even though we know that Jesus really battled um, internally and with his father over this pattern, that he ultimately submitted to God because he knew that a great yield of good things would come from his submission. And that's the same pattern that we're invited to, that as we suffer by doing good, that we can trust that God is going to use that to develop our own character and also bring other people's good fruit in their life. Well, um, one of the quotes that I find really helpful as we think about this pattern of suffering and the good things that come out of it is this quote from C.S. Lewis. And this is from his book, The Problem of Pain, 
um, which I think is a, is a great book for this topic. I'd recommend it. And this is what Lewis says. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Okay, so that's how God chooses to use suffering and pain, is it's a megaphone that rouses us out of our sleepy state and into being awake to the things of God. And we see that illustrated today in our main text. So for our main text today, we're going to be in Daniel 3, um, the, most, most of it, primarily the first part. So a little bit about the book of Daniel. Um, they were at a really tough point um, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish world at this point. So this, they're in a time of exile, like we talked about. We know what an exile is. And they are exiled specifically in Babylon. Their land was devastated. The temple and the city of Jerusalem were in ruins. Their people were scattered either amongst the, the Gentiles that are specifically in bondage in Babylon, which is our story today. And the situation looked really hopeless. We know that the prophets foresaw days of hope, uh, but those were still a ways off. And they had a lot of suffering that they had to endure under Nebuchadnezzar and um, in many other ways. And so at this point in the story, they're under Nebuchadnezzar, and um, we'll, we'll see what happens. But Nebuchadnezzar is, has decided at this point <laughs> to um, unite the country under one state religion. Okay, so that's the backstory. Um, join with me in reading Daniel 3. I decided to read it from the message because I just really liked how Eugene Peterson characterized it. So here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar built a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet thick. He set it up on the Dura Plain in the province of Babylon. He then ordered all the important leaders in the province, everybody who was anybody, to the dedication ceremony of the statue. They all came for the dedication, all of the important people, and they took their place before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. And a herald then proclaimed in a loud voice, attention everyone, every race, color, and creed, listen. When you hear the band strike up, all the trumpets and the trombones and the tubas and the baritones and the drums and the cymbals, fall to your knees and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Anyone who does not kneel and worship shall be thrown immediately into the roaring furnace. So the band started to play, a huge band equipped with all the musical instruments of Babylon. And everyone, every race, color, and creed fell to their knees and they worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Just then, some Babylonian fortune tellers stepped up and accused the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You gave strict orders, O king, that when the big band started to play, everyone, had to fall on their knees and worship the gold statue. And whoever did not go on their knees and worship it had to be pitched into a roaring furnace. Well, there are some Jews here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have placed in high positions in the province of Babylon. These men, they're ignoring you, O king. They don't respect your gods, and they won't worship the gold statue that you set up. Furious, King Nebuchadnezzar ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought in. And when the men were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't respect my gods and you refuse to worship the gold statue that I have set up? 
well, I'm giving you a second chance. But from now on, when the big band strikes up, you must go to your knees and worship the statue I have made. And if you don't worship it, you will be pitched into a roaring furnace. No questions asked. Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Okay, so this is probably a familiar story to you, right? There's a VeggieTales episode on it. Um, it's something that we hear about. It's referred to in other places in scripture. Um, but you can imagine that if you were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or a Jewish person in this context, that you are now in a pretty tricky place, right? That you have been set up high um, to be in government, that they're probably in a place that's pretty cushy, they're probably pretty comfortable, they have a lot of really good things going for them, people are listening to them, but they're also a foreigner, they're an exile, they're a stranger, because they're Jewish, and that probably makes them a little bit different and suspect. Um, so they're in that tricky position, right, that we talked about in First Peter, First Peter chapter 2, where you're supposed to fear God and you're also supposed to honor the king, right? So what do you do when those seem to be in opposition to each other? Can you do both or what's the most important? Well, a couple things that I think um, stand out to me when I ask that question one is that I noticed that these three men didn't actually pick a fight, right? That um, they stood up for their love for God and they did the right thing in terms of worship. But really what happened was that they had some guys who came and tattled on them and they were drug in um, and really pushed to testify to what they believed in. So I think that's important because it shows that I think in their own way, they really were trying to respect the king that they were under and the position that they were given, um, really by God. He put them in a high place, I think, for his honor. And, but when, when push came to shove, they were put in a position where they had to choose between the two. And I think in a really clear, but also respectful way, um, they spoke up for, for God and for what they believed in. And they believed that God could save them, but they also knew that even if he didn't, that he was still good. And perhaps, perhaps they were thinking of this passage in Isaiah. I don't know. Isaiah was written before the book of Daniel. And um, I, just, I just love this because I think it, it just speaks to what they experienced. It's Isaiah 43, um, verse 2b. It says, When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. So perhaps this, this promise was circulating in their mind as they're in this situation with this fiery furnace next to them, and they have to figure out what to do and how to act. Well, here's what happens. So verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar, his face purple with anger, cut off Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace fired up seven times hotter than usual. And he ordered some strong men from the army to tie them up, hands and feet, and throw them into that roaring furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound, hand and foot, fully dressed from head to toe, and they were pitched into the roaring fire. Because the, the king was in such a hurry and the furnace was so hot, flames from the furnace killed the men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to it. And while the fire raged around them. Verse 24, suddenly King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up with alarm and he said, did we not throw these men bound hand and foot into the fire? That's right, O king, they said. But look, he said, I see four men walking around freely in the fire completely unharmed, and the fourth man looks like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar went to the door, and he called out to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, and they walked out of the fire. 
So here in this story, um, which I think must have been an incredible piece of comfort for the Jewish people um, and, for the, and for the Christians, we see that God chooses in this situation to do an incredible miracle, right? That they are thrown into this fire that's unbearably hot, that even the people who are near it die from it. And in the fire, they have each other, and they also have fellowship with God. We don't really know what Nebuchadnezzar saw, right? We don't know if it was Jesus, if it was an angel, um, what that was. But we know that there was evidence that God was with them in that fiery furnace, and he delivered them in a special way. So three things that I see from this story um, that I think help bring us hope and help us to answer the question of where is God in the midst of suffering? Well, one, we can see that they were in it together, that in the midst of a really tough situation where it must have been confusing and hard for them to know how to behave, um, they had each other and they were able to make decisions together and act together in faith. And I think that that is an important lesson for us here in the church, that sometimes our suffering is the church, right? Sometimes we are mean to each other and where there's lots of disappointments amongst the body of Christ. And I think this is a good lesson that, that really there's strength for us in being in this game together and in loving each other and supporting each other. And sometimes that means that we maybe say words of encouragement, but I think often it's just living life together and being in it together. And I think, I think back to this, this truth that we see from the book of Job, where when Job's life is going down the tube, that his friends just came and sat with him and cried for seven days and seven nights. It says that they didn't say anything, they just sat with him. And there's something to be said for when we have people in our life that are suffering and that just being with them and being in life is what we need the most. The second thing I see is that God was with them, that in whatever form he, sh he showed up in, he was there. And so we know that sometimes God prevents suffering, that sometimes he rescues us, like in this story, from the suffering. And we know that sometimes he allows suffering and that he is there with us in that suffering. Hebrews 11 records this story, a little piece of it. And what we see from that little snippet in Hebrews 11 is that in the great hall of faith, there were some that were delivered from suffering and there were some that were not delivered from suffering. But at the end, it says all were commended for their faith and all were in waiting, waiting for a time where all together they would be made perfect. Sometimes we endure great suffering like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But more often our sufferings are just the reality of being exiles, of being exiles in a land that isn't home for us, that we have the hope of heaven, and we also look back to the, to the original plan of Eden. Um, sometimes we feel misunderstood. Sometimes our bodies get sick. Often we hurt each other. We're disappointed by people, either inside or outside the church. We struggle with addictions. We're paralyzed by fears. Um, all of these things are just, they're signs of being in exile, of suffering in a broken world. But in the middle of the mess, the truth that we see today about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is true for us, that God is really with us, that this is really the story of, of the good news of Jesus, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is sort of a foreshadowing of the things to come, that God sent his son Jesus, the ultimate exile, to be with us, that Jesus is light in the darkness, that he is our strength and weakness, that he is our joy and pain and suffering, and he is the one that sustains us through his grace. So I'm going to close today with this quote that I found really helpful from Philip Yancey. And Philip Yancey has some great books on um, God and suffering, and if you Google him, you'll see some of them. So this is what Philip Yancey writes, and this is from his book, 
where is God when it hurts? He says, the Bible consistently changes the questions we bring to the problem of pain. It rarely or ambiguously answers the backward-looking question, why? Instead, it raises a very different forward-looking question. Instead, it says, to what end? We are not put on earth merely to satisfy our desires, to pursue life, liberty, or happiness. We are here to be changed, to be made more like God in order to prepare us for a lifetime with him. So I think that is the answer of where is God in the midst of suffering, that he is with us. And the question is less why and how is God going to use that to change us, to be more like the person of Jesus and to be with us. And lastly, I want to emphasize that in this story, we see that the bondages of these men were broken free. And as we move forward in our Rooted series, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how part of the Christian walk is God loosening the bondage that we have on us, partially so that we can be free, but also so that we can be free to serve him and to live the purpose that he has given us. Well, today I have three questions for you related to being exiles. And the first question is, how does viewing yourself as a fellow exile give you hope? Number two, when have you experienced fellowship and freedom in a hard time? And lastly, how can you be an encouragement to someone who is in a trial?